This is Chapter 142 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We travel into deep space in the not-too-distant future this week with young adult author and former teen pop singer Alexandra Monier. Then we talk with debut author Caitlin Mullen about her book that's breaking the traditional thriller mold. With the Earth rendered inhospitable due to climate change, the future of humankind lies with six teens who are sent on a mission to establish a new home on one of Jupiter's moons. That's the premise of author Alexandra Monier's The Final Six series, and she delivers the highly anticipated sequel to her teen sci-fi thriller with The Life Below. We chatted about the new book, which picks up right where the first one left readers hanging. It actually starts, um, we get like a little prologue that takes place about 43 days after the cliffhanger. So I kind of plunge you all right into the action and some imminent danger. But then we do flashback to exactly where the cliffhanger left off. And yeah, I've been, it's been so exciting because, you know, the book was like, it was one of those things where the book garnered a response that was so passionate and kind of everything I could have hoped for from the readers. And so I definitely was nervous going into the sequel. And I probably, you know, went back and tweaked it so many more times than I have other books of mine, because I was just like, there's so much anticipation, especially after that cliffhanger. So um, the fact that it seems like, you know, the response I've been getting so far is like people saying they like it even more, which is just amazing. So um, I definitely did try and for sure, you know, go into writing the second book consciously aware of, of, okay, what promises did I sort of make to the readers and how do I fulfill those promises? Meaning like, what did I set up in the first book that people are going to want to really see pay off? Have you always been fascinated by space and space travel? Yes, definitely. Um, I remember going back as far as elementary school. I feel like that was the topic in school that always interested me the most. And I think it just really struck my imagination in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, I have so few memories of elementary school. I mean, not so much, you know, of course, I remember my friends and things like that. But just in terms of what we studied and all of that, like, I barely remember anything. But the thing that's always very vivid for me is just memories of like learning about the solar system and all the different kind of daydreams I would have. And, and my brother had one of those glow in the dark um, solar system things on his stickers on his wall growing up on his ceiling. And I used to stare at them all the time and just imagine. So yeah, I think it was it was only a matter of time before I wrote something about space. And you also came up during an age where we were sending shuttles into space with crews Mm -hmm. of people. And I think the the younger generation now, they're a little bit removed from that because we haven't done that in a really long time. I know. It's sad. I mean, they do see things like, you know, missions on the ISS and different spacewalks and stuff. But, yeah, I feel like it was a little bit of a bigger deal when I was growing up. Um, So... For sure. I think since they kind of retired the space shuttle program, it has maybe felt a little bit more removed. And a lot of the missions that they're doing now at NASA are robotic and sending probes out there so that I think it maybe just, yeah, makes teenagers feel a little bit separate in a way that before kind of captivated us all. I think something, though, that teenagers here on Earth are very concerned with is the whole idea of climate change. And the premise of the book is 
this crew needs to go out to this to Europa, the moon of Jupiter, because we basically have completely destroyed the Earth and we need a new place to live. Exactly, exactly. And um, that is something that I for sure put a lot of research into. So, you know, in the opening pages of the first book, I describe really well-known landmarks and cities underwater. And um, it sounds like, you know, post-apocalyptic, like fantasy, not fantasy, but you know what I mean? Like it sounds far-fetched or like, you know, very imaginative. But the truth is that I did do a lot of kind of scientific research. And this is what the world will likely look like in, you know, maybe not in our lifetime, obviously, but not too far ahead if we kind of continue on this path that we're on right now with all of the, all of the like, you know, carbon emissions and just everything that we've been doing to our environment. So I looked at images and graphs and data showing, you know, that, that, Places like Miami will be gone, Venice, and, you know, things like that. And so it is really scary. And kind of my hope with this was, of course, you know, first and foremost, you want to tell a great story. You don't want to be, no one wants to be preachy. But I did hope that, you know, the way I talk about the earth and what we've done to it and how fragile it is, like, my hope is that, you know, readers would take from that, that there is a chance that we could save it and whatever we can do, we should be doing. I love, too, that I'm not going to give anything away, but there's also this idea that we should be learning from history and maybe not repeating the same mistakes. Yes, yes, for sure. And, I mean, I definitely feel like, you know, I feel like in the news there's so much of repeating of past mistakes, and, and that can be really hard to watch, especially when you're especially when you're a teenager, I think, and you've been reading about and studying about all these kind of mistakes past governments and countries have made. And then you kind of see those things happening in your time. You're like, wait, what in the world? I thought the grownups were supposed to know what they're doing here. Um, And so that's part of why I love having these teenage protagonists who are kind of stepping up because sometimes, oftentimes, as we see with someone like Greta Thunberg, it really is the young people that have to kind of step up and change the status quo. You have a very diverse cast of young people, which really shouldn't be surprising since the world is such a diverse place. And yet this is rare in publishing. It is. It is. Um, I mean, there have been so many surveys that talk about how rare it is to have. Honestly, there was a recent survey by Lee and Lowe that um, basically looked into what what characters and what types of characters and ethnicities and backgrounds were represented the most in children's books. And it's pretty sad to say that animals get better representation in children's books than people of diverse backgrounds. Um, So that was definitely, uh, you know, hard to see. And especially me being Iranian American and I did, you know, just like I grew up in the time of a lot of space shuttle action in the, you know, early 2000s, um, I also grew up, I was also in high school post 9-11. So even though Iran, you know, had nothing to do with 9-11, it was just sort of, you were kind of being from a Middle Eastern country, you were lumped in with all of that. And there was no nuance back then. So I definitely encountered a lot of prejudice. Um, and that was really, really hard. And I think it would have helped a lot if in pop culture, 
in books, there had been like an Iranian American Hermione or Katniss or just somebody because there is such a big population in America that's just in my of my culture and that it's not represented at all is, is pretty crazy to me. So YA is honestly the first place that is starting to um, is starting to have that representation. Like obviously there's my book and then there's um, you know some other great authors too that in YA particularly that have started coming out with these great stories that feature Iranian-American leads, and it's not necessarily about them being Iranian. It's, it's a great story like any other great YA story, but they just happen to come from those backgrounds, and those backgrounds just add a whole other layer to their character. So that's what I really wanted to do with, with this series, was to give give people that come from a country like mine or even, you know, just any country or ethnicity that's different from, you know, that kind of white blonde norm that we might be seeing a lot on book covers um, and, and feel like they see themselves. Readers may not know this about you. I didn't until I was researching this interview, but you sang mm-hmm. professionally before you started writing. And yes. you actually wrote an instrumental score for this book. I did. I don't know if anyone will ever hear it, but maybe I'll one day put it on online or something. But um, yeah, I uh, I started my career as a teen pop singer. I was inspired because my mom is a recording artist, so I grew up with her in the studio a lot. And then my grandmother, who sadly died before I was born, but who I was named after, her name was Monir, so Monir Vakili. So they gave me her name as my middle name, and then I kind of took that as my stage name and pen name. She was a really famous opera singer. She was pretty much the foremost opera singer in Iran. And so I grew up with those influences, but being that I, I kind of grew up in the time of Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, <laughs> and my my talent sort of took shape of like writing teen pop music. Um and so I, I, had, um, I had a lot of fun. I, I got to tour as the opening act for uh, people who at the time were a big deal, like O-Town and Aaron Carter. And that was really fun to be, you know, in my last couple summers of high school doing that. Um, but I was always so into reading at the same time. So I kind of quickly realized books were where, and storytelling, any kind of storytelling, really. That was where my heart was. But in order to keep the music with me, in all of my books, I try to find a little place where music fits in. So um, I have my first book series, Timeless. Actually, my characters were musicians, so I actually wrote and recorded songs for them that you can find on Spotify, iTunes, wherever. But in the case of The Final Six and The Life Below, which is, you know, straight up sci-fi, it doesn't really make sense for anyone to be breaking into song. Um, I sort of wrote basically just a, a a little instrumental that is mentioned in the book as a musical code when they're sort of trying to receive and send messages to and from other worlds. And that's all I'll say about that without revealing too much. Is there any chance, I guess, then that that will get featured in the film version? Because I know there was this hot auction to, to get the film rights and Sony Pictures has them. Will your music be in it? Um, I have no idea. It's so funny. Authors have so little control over the film and TV adaptation stuff. Um, like, you know, it was so exciting when, when the deal happened with Sony, but now I've just kind of 
I'm sort of just keeping my head down and writing and seeing like, will anything ever happen on the screen? Hopefully, but it just takes so long in Hollywood. Um, but yeah, I certainly am always going to kind of let whoever's in charge on the film and TV side know about, you know, what I've written musically for whatever project we're doing. But I also know that I'm very much not in charge. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of up to the studio or the powers that be. I feel like we keep saying this in the interview, but I don't want to give anything away, but I want to know, is there any chance that we might see future books involving some other characters who make an appearance in your series? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I've had so many people ask me, "Is was The Life Below the last book in the series? Is there a third? And what I can say is that right now, it's, it's just a duology. Like from the beginning, the deal with HarperCollins was two books. That's how I envisioned it. But of course, while writing, I can totally see it continuing beyond that. And um, it would be such a dream to get to revisit the characters again. So right now I have two other books under contracts that are totally different that I have to, of course, write and put out into the world first. But I'm, I'm going to be kind of watching, you know, what the reaction is to the second book and the series. And I definitely think like, you know, if it seems like, you know, I don't know if it seems like there is a clamoring for a third <laughs> book, I'm sure it could potentially happen. It's sort of up to my publisher. So yeah, so fingers crossed. One of your future projects is actually a comic book, right? That's coming out? Well, it's actually, it's a, it's a full-on traditional novel, young adult novel for Random House, but it is based on a DC Comics uh, character, Black Canary, a female superhero. So um, it's so exciting. I've been tasked with the coolest job ever. I get to write the YA origin story for Black Canary, and it's going to be part of the DC Icon series. So it's a series that until now has been just four books. And they've kind of picked a huge author to write a huge character. So like Leah Bardugo wrote Wonder Woman. And, um, and they just had th this amazing four book series. And then um, I came up with an idea for Black Canary. And I was sort of like, hmm, I wonder if anyone would actually let me do this. <laughs> and um, to my amazement, both DC and Random House loved it. So so it'll be the fifth book in the DC Icon series for Random House, and it's going to tell the origin story of a teenage Dinah Laurel Lance. So I'm so excited. Have you always been a DC fan? Yes, yes. DC, I have always loved. Um, I, I can remember, and again, going back to like high school influences, which seem to be so influential in my career, but Smallville was, of course, my favorite show. And... Um, and yeah, and, and also Marvel. Like, I, I love both um, Spider-Man, the, the Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst one was really formative for me. Um, so yeah, I think for sure, I've always loved those big sort of superhero stories, but definitely felt like I missed the kind of female superhero side of things. So it was really exciting when Wonder Woman came out and got her moment a few years ago. And now that's continuing with the sequel, and now we're getting Black Widow, and, you know, I'm loving all of that Harley Quinn, so it's just exciting to be writing for a time where female superheroes are getting the attention, too. It sounds like you've got a very full plate coming up. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm super grateful, because as a writer, it's like, you know, you always just want to know that you're going to get to writing more books, so it's just such a, such a blessing. 
Well, we've been talking with Alexandra Monier, the sequel to The Final Six. It's called The Life Below. Thank you so much for spending some time and talking to us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. This was such a fun conversation. You'll view the New Jersey resort town of Atlantic City through different eyes after reading the debut novel from Caitlin Mullen. Her thriller is unlike any you've ever read, and I guarantee the plot and the book's overarching themes will haunt you long after you read the last page. She recently stopped by our studios to talk about Please See Us. I think it's safe to say I'm never going to look at Atlantic City the same way again, (laughs) and especially the people who live there and the people who work there. How did you come about to write about Atlantic City and those people? I grew up in part in Atlantic City. I went to high school in the area. My family, uh, a lot of my family members worked in Atlantic City. My dad worked at casinos his whole life. My grandmother actually, after raising six kids, worked at resorts when it opened in Atlantic City in the late 70s. And that was, you know, the first casino and she was in on that from the beginning. So it was Atlantic City was just always a part of of my story, of my family's story. And that really gave me a way into the ways that not just people, you know, I was related to lived, but the ways that people in the community lived too. It was just a part of the texture of my childhood and of my life. So I felt like I had access to a lot of stories that way when it came time to write a novel. I think a lot of people, you know, they know the boardwalk. Mm -hmm. They know the Miss America pageant. They know the casinos. They know the Trump casinos. They've known in years past, you know, they've kind of gone bust and bankrupt and maybe are coming back away again but the town surrounding it I think it might surprise a lot of people how desolate and poor and and run down it really is and how hard on their luck people are yeah um I think that symbology of Atlantic City and all of its glamour is the more familiar story that people know but people are having a really hard time in and around Atlantic City when the casinos closed many people lost their jobs lost their health insurance, have had to leave the area. So there's also this sense now, too, not just of the diminished economy, but of a sort of quietness that's crept into town, too, which is also really sad. And, yeah, there are a lot of people who are hard on their luck. And I think the contrast of what Atlantic City used to be, this glittery place that for a lot of people was so full of promise to what it is now, is is very stark and really sad. You shine a light on those people in the shadows, whether it's the prostitutes, the drug dealers, the drug pushers, the janitors, the transients, people just trying to get by. And they really are people you know are there, but you don't see them, which I guess is kind of the point of your book. Yeah, I think in a tourist town especially, um, and one that, like Atlantic City, is considered an escape for so many people who are going there, it's really easy to overlook the people whose lives are stationed in that place. It's really easy to overlook the people who are maintaining the shiny, nice casinos and mopping the floors or, you know, dusting things off. It's easy to overlook those people in the shadows. So a part of the project of this book was definitely to bring those stories to light. We've talked about the setting. We've kind of set the scene now for for readers. Tell us a little bit about the plot. Sure. So Please See Us is set over the course of a single summer in Atlantic City. At the beginning of the book, we learned that there are two dead women hidden in the marsh behind a seedy motel just outside of town, but no one knows they're there or even that they're missing. 
And these women, they know that it's too late for them, that they obviously can't be saved, but they are hoping that someone will find them, that someone will help them tell their stories. And then we meet one of two main characters, Clara. Clara is a 16-year-old boardwalk psychic. She's recently dropped out of high school to help her aunt run the fortune-telling shop that they own on the boardwalk. And Clara starts to have these really disturbing and violent and powerful visions, but she doesn't know exactly what they mean. And she starts to think they might be connected to disappearances of women in and around Atlantic City. She meets Lily. Lily is our second of two main characters. Lily has recently come back to the Atlantic City area after making a life in the New York City art world, which fell apart in one very disastrous evening. And she finds a job at a casino spa as a receptionist to get back on her feet. And that's where she meets Clara. And then the two of them band together to try to find out what's happening to women in Atlantic City. I think one of the things that set your thriller apart from others that I've read, and you alluded to it a little bit, is that we get to hear from the victims post-mortem, which, and it's not just at the top of the book. This is something that's woven throughout the book. And I thought that was a really interesting detail and also this idea everyone has this idea that when you die you're free you're happy and that's not the case with these ladies yeah I wanted them to feel like they were haunting the novel in a way like they were ghosts in the way that ghosts have unfinished business to handle and these women very much do have unfinished business in that no one's seeing their life stories and even they worry that once they're found, the only story that's going to be told about them is going to be that they were murdered, or it's going to be the stories of the mistakes they made that led them to be, you know, in the position to come against someone violent who would do them harm, when really their stories are, like anyone's story, so much more complex and vivid and complicated and interesting the, the whole idea about seeing, I know the, the title itself has a lot of different meanings, whether it's these victims pleading for it, whether it's the people in the shadows that we talked about. Is that also why Clara is a psychic who is a seer, someone who sees in a different way? Yeah, I really wanted to play with those ideas about seeing and who sees what, what is visible and what's not. Clara has visions that are very vivid and real to her even though she doesn't always understand them. And they give her insight to situations, and they sort of, in some cases, arm her, give her power. And in other ways, Clara doesn't see things um, or misjudges things in the ways that all the characters in the book can see some things and are blind to other things in their worlds. So I wanted to play with that dynamic a lot about what we see and what we're blind to. And is that where the art comes into it, too? Because there's this... the there's a storyline about these paintings about Atlantic City that really showcase the non-glamorous side of it and really have all this meaning and that's also I guess a way of seeing things that aren't that people normally would just brush aside or choose to ignore. Yeah no I wanted those paintings to be a testament to a lot of the really vivid history of Atlantic City that a lot of people don't know about and the paintings and the painter and the novel our way of, of bringing that history and the untold stories to light in another way. And Lily, especially, you know, with her background in the art world, is very interested in these paintings and making sure the paintings are seen by hopefully a broader audience and uncovering who did them. The painter, uh, the identity of the painter is unknown for most of the book. And that's also one of her 
projects along with telling the stories of the women is telling the story of this painter and that way also bringing the painter's stories to life for other people. Someone describes your book as a tribute to women, both the victims and and those who are living. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that assessment because I think the book is very much a thriller, but one of my imperatives in writing it was defying the typical thriller narrative in a way that gives women their due as full people uh, who are both flawed and have virtues, who have hopes and dreams and aren't just the quote-unquote dead girls that initiate the typical murder mystery plot. So yeah, I do think I wanted to write a book that explored the complexities of women's lives in particular, absolutely. Usually a thriller of this kind would be all about the investigation and the hunt for the killer, uh, etc. But in this case, that that's almost relegated to the background, that yes, this is going on, but it's the victims and the potential victims who readers really get to know. Yeah, I think we do those victim characters a disservice when we ignore their stories or when we insist upon victims having to be perfect. I think we have a lot of books with the idealized dead woman, the beautiful, perfect homemaker, the straight-A student gone missing. And while I enjoy many of those books, too, I, I also feel like there's a really interesting turn in thrillers and mysteries where I women writers in particular seem to be interrogating those narratives and offering alternatives, including focusing more on the victims as full, messy, complicated people. Do you think some of that comes from real life where people don't like to speak ill of the dead? That's why these perfect narratives get get painted? Yeah, I think it's always easier for everyone to insist upon a victim or a you know, a loved one who's passed away or anyone in our lives um, as more perfect than they actually were in life. But I don't know. I think there's something to be said about celebrating flaws too, along with virtues, because that's what makes us interesting. Was there a a line for you, though, in terms of painting, uh, creating these characters with all their flaws but also at the same time making sure that you weren't victim-blaming in what happened to them. Yeah, I wanted to be really careful about that and approach that thoughtfully. And I, you know, my hope is by focusing on the fuller picture of these women's lives, it skirts in a way that victim-blaming because we also have, that's another narrative we have, along with the perfect idealized woman who's murdered, we have the women who are asking for it. And a lot of these characters in the book are sex workers or they have had problems with substance abuse. Um, But I I hope that the book does not present them as, well, you know, they, they of course had it coming because they absolutely didn't. I saw, in fact, how easy it was for women without a safety net to just make a few decisions that would seal your fate in ways that you could never imagine. What do you want readers to take away? I think I want readers to understand a couple of things. One is I wanted to paint a picture, like we talked about, of Atlantic City as a really vivid, complex, interesting place. 
and I wanted to push against the archetypes we see in, in this genre a little bit and again focus on all the varieties of womanhood that can be experienced and quite frankly the ways still in contemporary society women are punished for their desires or punished for being imperfect the ways that violence against women of you know violent acts of many different magnitudes are committed across class um, across life experiences every single day and the book doesn't offer any easy resolutions or easy answers when it comes to those issues but I hope it's a way to start a conversation about how we talk about women's lives and how we talk about women's choices. The ending of the book, I'm not going to give anything away, but I have to say that I was surprised about where it ended Mm -hmm. and how it wrapped up or resolved itself because, again, it's not what you expect in typical thrillers where things are either, oh, it's a cliffhanger, there's going to be more to come, or wrapped up with a neat little bow this kind of landed in the middle somewhere and Mm. at some point I was a little frustrated I'm like what do you mean and then part of it I I understood it to be well this might just be a statement on what life is like it's messy and unresolved Mm -hmm. yeah I knew I was taking a risk when I decided to end the book the way I did and that not all readers would be maybe completely satisfied with the ending but to me it did feel perhaps more true to the way that I experienced the world and many women experience the world in that there isn't always easy resolution there isn't always justice there isn't always the firm final answer when something goes wrong but you know a lot of times what happens in our lives sits uneasily with us for a long time I think a lot of women will realize that. Do you think male readers will realize that? That's a good question. Um, I would like to think they they would. Um, I do think that this is maybe something that women inherently understand through life experience and that maybe men don't quite realize as easily just because I do think we live in a world that rewards men more easily that men don't necessarily understand or feel what it means to be a woman and look at the world as a place where you could possibly be punished for being yourself or be punished for what you want. Uh, So I I hope that it will help develop that understanding for male readers who maybe don't experience the world in that way. Yeah, as as I was reading the book, I realized also that the title could apply to any woman reading the book because we've all been I mean I think most women have found themselves in a position whether it's at work or home or wherever where you're just begging for people to acknowledge you and see you and and take you for what you are and appreciate you for the person that you are and not putting something else on you or just ignoring you yeah I mean there's so much pressure on women and women of all backgrounds to be one thing to conform to some archetype and the title is an insistence on just see us, see us, see what we want, see us for what we are, like you said, and see our struggles for what those are too. Is your next project going to remain in the, the thriller or breaking the thriller, the genre? My next project, I don't know that it will be a thriller, but I'm writing about a ballet school. So I think it's going to take up a lot of those same themes about the ways men feel entitled to women's bodies, the way that women 
are pressured to conform in certain ways, uh, women and ambition. So I think thematically there may be some links. It's a little too early to know plot-wise what the links will be, if any. So we'll have to wait for that. But in the meantime, we can read Please See Us, Caitlin Mullen. Thank you for coming in and talking to us today about it. Thank you so much for having me. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time, it's a tale of two Grace Kellys, or rather, two tales inspired by America's First Princess. Until then, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.